Hello, listeners, and welcome to the sixth episode of the Always Drive podcast. I'm your host, Devlin Riggs, and if you're new to the show, this is a weekly look at the latest news from the car, truck, and motorcycle industries, where we take ourselves about as seriously as the Grammy Awards take vanilla ice. If you've listened before, by all means, welcome back. For those of you expecting the show on Friday, I'm sorry to be getting this out a little late. I spent uh, most of this week in entertainment wasteland, uh, which is, of course, Orlando, Florida, at a conference for the real job I have since this show is brought to you by nobody in particular. Uh, While in Orlando, or as our Barcelonan Uber driver Fabio called it, Orlando, I was really struck by the disparity of the car quality there. Of course, in the valet spots outside the restaurants and hotels, there were Lamborghinis and an AMG GT, which I think was the first time I've seen one in the flesh. Uh, But on the way to that restaurant, I saw a 92 Accord with, honest to God, no rear end on it. No bumper, no trunk, no fenders, but some lights just to, you know, make it sort of legal. Uh, The same Accord was driven by a guy who looked like he was on no fewer than five narcotics and kept trying to cut off Fabio and repeatedly offered some single-fingered salutes when Fabio drove like a normal human being. Uh, But if you've been to a place called the Internet, you've probably seen a gif of Bugs Bunny rapidly sawing the ground and sending Florida adrift from the rest of the U.S., which, after a week there, I mostly endorse. But let's see if we can save the Lamborghinis first, okay? Uh, Fortunately, I brought some of the Florida weather back with me, so I'm recording with the windows to the studio, which is a term I use very loosely, open. Now, we had a big week with the Chicago Auto Show and a delightfully political scandal-free week, at least in the auto world, so let's jump on into the news. The end is nigh! The end is nigh! Hear ye, the end is nigh! Yes, friends, the end uh, to all that we hold dear is coming, and it comes not with a bang, but with a whimper. And what does the whimper say? Eclipse. That's right. Mitsubishi is bringing back the Eclipse, but not in a way that anyone who had any sort of feelings for the old Eclipse will ever have wanted. It's coming back as... A crossover. Ford can't sell Mustangs. Nobody can afford Japanese sports cars. And Mitsubishi is taking the memories of thousands of tuner enthusiasts, gathering them into a neat little pile, dropping their pants and taking a big fat dump on them, and then setting that whole pile on fire. But Mitsubishi is thrilled about it. Listen to their description in the new car. The Eclipse Cross's beautiful, dynamic form serves to bring about the same sense of excitement and inspiration as the diamond ring seen immediately before and after a total solar eclipse does. What the fuck is that? I'm in marketing, and I have been known to weave a tall tale every now and then, but this is PR bullshit, four times distilled into buzzword nothingness that only serves to further frustrate the people alienated by having one of their favorite cars redesigned to compete with the goddamn Nissan Rogue. Which, 
by the way, was only the second best-selling SUV or crossover in the U.S. behind the Honda CRV. Get your bug out bags, people. The crossover train is off the rails and it's tearing its way through Nostalgiaville. <sighs> okay. I have to start off by saying that I'm sorry if I sound a little different this week. Uh, I have a bit of a frog in my throat. And soon, so will Opal! That's right, General Motors is looking at offloading Opal and Vauxhall to the PSA group from France for $2 billion, making it the highest price France has paid for a German machine since June 17, 1940. Uh, if this seems a bit sudden, you're not wrong. Uh, GM has owned, fully owned Opal since 1931, which is a hell of a long time, and much of the Buick lineup is made of badge-engineered Opal or Vauxhall cars, and Buick is GM's second largest selling brand. Excuse me. Um, a lot of speculation has production of shared platforms moving to China, which would save big money for GM, but would buyers really want to purchase a car made in China? I mean, given that the Encore, which is Buick's bestseller, a uh, compact crossover, is made in Korea, maybe it's not that big a deal. Uh, Germany, Germany and England, though, are concerned about the future of their five factories, which could come into question if Peugeot Citroën DS takes over, or if GM decides to cheap out and send everything to China and keep the brands. The Automotive News is uh, even suggesting that offloading Opal could mean GM is going to make a run at purchasing Fiat Chrysler, uh, which would result in the merging of two of Detroit's big three, which would throw the entire automotive world into chaos and likely lead uh, to thousands of job losses due to the synergies that uh, would result from the uh, combined company. Uh, there are right now more questions than we have answers, but if there's one thing that we can be sure of, it's that we're not going to be seeing that Camaro-based Avista anytime soon, which is a shame because that car was hotter than freaking Justin Trudeau. Uh, next up, Smart, the Daimler-Benz car brand that makes the diminutive 4.2 microcar, has announced that they will be selling only electric smart cars from here on out. As a quick refresher on why smart cars are some of the dumbest vehicles you can possibly buy, here are some quick hits. One, the Gas 4.2 has a turbo three-cylinder engine that somehow makes only 89 horsepower, which is good for a 10-second 0-60, and gets a combined 34 miles per gallon, which in all metrics is worse than my Mazda 3 hatchback. It has a tiny 8.7-gallon fuel tank, a top speed of 96 miles per hour, and requires, to use, requires you to use premium fuel because it's turbocharged, which again, in all metrics, is worse than my Mazda 3 hatchback. It has 7.8 feet of cargo capacity, uh, which is not even enough for one human chopped up into tiny little bits. Um, Seats 2 has, according to the features listed online, a cup holder and a solid roof with a fabric finish, First, what the what the hell is a fabric finish? Why can't it just have a roof? And second, still worse in all metrics than my Mazda 3 hatchback. Now, I'm not telling you that if you're honestly considering buying a petrol-powered Smart 4.2 before they stop making them, that you should get a Mazda 3 instead, 
because the only reason you would ever buy a smart car is if you're too uncoordinated to ride a bicycle and absolutely cannot park a Mazda 3 hatchback, which I grant is 80 inches longer. There's a reason drunken hooligans in the Netherlands tip these cars into the canals, but maybe they'll fix at least a little bit of that by going all electric. Now they'll just be like enclosed golf carts, and who doesn't love driving around in those? Anyway, a study by AAA this week revealed that millennials are the worst drivers, which, duh, uh, apparently 88.4% of drivers between 19 and 24 were engaging in some sort of hazardous activity like running red lights, speeding, or, of course, texting. Uh, What's kind of ridiculous about this study, though, is that none of the age groups had less than 67% of its drivers doing something dangerous. I mean, when speeding is on this list, that number can't possibly be any lower than that. And, of course, this is coming from someone who uses those funny black and white signs as suggestions rather than rules. Um, Now, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to start putting giant bows on these podcasts to get more people to download them every week. And if you're wondering why... Just take a look at Lexus. Every year they have those holiday commercials with a new RX350 and a gigantic red bow on the top. And at, at least in 2016, it worked like freaking gangbusters. So much so that Lexus actually ran out of supply of their RX and GX vehicles, which led to a 26% drop in sales in January because they couldn't satisfy the demand. Um, Ever the sacrificial lamb these days, their sedans didn't fare as well. So maybe the bow isn't the trick. It's having crossovers that soccer moms have to wipe their saliva off of. Uh, For those of you who remember the Saturn and the Opal GT-based Sky, you might remember that there was a redline trim that not only offered some cosmetic differences, but actually offered a 260-horsepower motor an enhanced sport suspension, a limited slip differential, and an improved interior. Well, now GM, after killing off Saturn, is reviving the redline trim in its Chevy vehicles and doing absolutely none of what it did before. So in the new redline trim, you'll get some red stripes that look an awful lot like they belong on a Dodge, some other things painted red, and some awkward badging, but nothing else in terms of performance or handling. GM, then, is basically trying to find another way to milk money out of people willing to pay for a special edition that is, in no appreciable way, special. Fresh news out of Korea, meanwhile, reveals that Nissan has also been found guilty of using an emissions cheating device on their diesel engine sourced from Renault, which, if you're keeping score, this means the only automaker not to have been found guilty of diesel cheating is Caterham which uh, is due in part to the fact that they actually don't make any engines. Uh, In good news this week, Suzuki has issued a recall, and if that sounds a little counterintuitive, it's because the recall applies to just one Suzuki Cappuccino, which looks just as cute as it sounds. Apparently, they missed putting a stamp on the cylinder block back when they made this in 1996, which could lead to some confusion, but no performance effects at all. So if Suzuki is this fastidious about their cars, maybe Toyota has a lot to gain from their partnership we discussed last week, more than just an entry into India. 
Finally this week, it was announced that everybody's favorite racing driver, Kimi Raikkonen, will be opening a karaoke bar in Helsinki, Finland. Now, if you're expecting to find Kimi Raikkonen coverage on the Post-Truth Channel News, it's true our broadcast partners enjoy a bit of fake news related to the Finn, but this news, thank God, is 100% true. So, let's move on and talk about some new cars coming out. The Chicago Auto Show was this past week, and although I didn't go, I have been positively riveted by the uh, vast amount of super interesting, compelling... (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Uh, Sorry, uh, where was I? Uh, oh yeah, the Chicago Auto Show um, after Detroit, the the Midwest's premier auto show. Um, we didn't really learn anything earth-shattering this week in Chicago, but I was introduced to a ner- new term by the Truth About Cars, which is DLO fail. Uh, DLO, or Daylight Opening, which is fancy car design talk for windows, Uh, used to identify sections of a car not occupied by body panels. A DLO fail, according to the truth about cars, is when a car has a bit of black plastic framed by some chrome that is meant to look like a window, but is not actually a daylight opening. Although I've never heard of this term, I've seen it everywhere, and it's become increasingly frequent in automotive design. Anywhere you see a car appear to have a window seamlessly extend from the rear door windows to the rear windscreen, like in the Nissan Cube or the new Nissan Maxima. Um, I think the um, Kia Optima also has this. Uh, That is a DLO fail. Um, And that's black plastic obscuring a structural pillar. This is running wild in car design, showing up in everything from Hyundais to Infinities and everything in between. While I understand it's used for design, it's it's essentially a stylistic lie, making it look like a car has better visibility than it does. In any case, it's not really a new car, but it's definitely a new trend that's worth noticing, so keep an eye out for DLO fail out there on the road. Uh, Next, if you've been holding off on buying a Ferrari because their models have only struck you as kind of fast, sort of fast, or even pretty fast. Rest easy, friend, because they now have you covered. The Ferrari F12 is being replaced by the 812, wait for it, super fast. Because 790 horsepower at 8,500 RPM was not an indication enough of how quick this car is, Ferrari have put the damn thing into the name that this is their most powerful, naturally aspirated V12 ever. Uh, This is not the first time that Ferrari has bestowed the super fast name upon a car, but the last time came in 1956, so I'm not sure why they've picked out now to resurrect it. Honestly, though, as someone who thinks that we are rapidly approaching idiocracy, Calling your fastest car a super fast is not far from Carl's Jr. and their extra big ass fries. Speaking of extra big ass, 
<coughs> Excuse me. Uh, speaking of extra big ass, the large SUV segment grew by 15% last year compared with a flat automotive sales industry, meaning the segment probably grew at the cost of mid-sized cars. Ford's president of the Americas, Joe Henricks, called large SUVs the fastest-growing automotive segment, which is why we were treated to reveals of the new Ford Expedition and Toyota Sequoia in Chicago. The Expedition, uh, not content with its current big-ass size, has gone extra big-ass, adding three inches to the wheelbase and four inches to length. It hasn't really been redesigned for about 20 years, uh, but sales of the Expedition last year rose 44% a year before redesign, which is almost entirely unheard of. Uh, instead of the outgoing 5.4-liter V8, the new truck has a 3.5-liter EcoBoost V6 with a 10-speed automatic transmission, uh, which will maximize the fuel mileage, but it's still a really large truck. Uh, the Sequoia, likewise, has been around mostly unchanged since 2000, and it gets a new exterior, a new interior, and a TRD package that adds 20-inch wheels, making it look even bigger than extra big ass. Um, I use as an aside. I used to remember when um, donks would have 20-inch wheels on them, and they looked so unbelievable that they'd actually put the little badge that said 20 inches next to them to denote that hey, this is a crazy large wheel size. And now it's just a factory option at Toyota of all brands. <laughs> Amazing times, right? Uh, anyway, the Toyota keeps its uh, big-ass 5.7-liter uh, V8 showing up the Ford in power, but definitely not efficiency. But who gives a shit about efficiency? Bitches, this is Trump's America, and gas is cheap. Drink up, Sequoia! In, uh, in slightly more reasonable car news, Volvo has announced their upcoming XC40, uh, carrying on Volvo's tradition of coming late to the game in any trend, this compact crossover... <clears throat> oh, excuse me, I just uh, gagged a little bit, uh, will debut this year after everyone has already bought Nissan Rogues, Honda CRVs, and Mazda CX-5s. Volvo R&D boss Henrik Green told Autocar that, quote, there's a big chance it'll be one of the most successful cars in our lineup, end quote, to which anyone who's been watching the car market for the past decade responded, no shit, Sherlock. The XC60, which is currently Volvo's smallest crossover, is their best-selling vehicle because despite the fact that you can buy the V60 and V90 wagons, it attracts people like moths to a flame that is worse in almost every way to an attractive, good-handling flame that can be had in Polestar form. Uh, that's the end of the news because if I have to talk about the RAV4 Adventure trim, I'm going to go have to club a baby seal. Um, now we're going to hop right into our deep dive. Last week, I finished watching the first season of the Grand Tour on Amazon Prime. Since I actually pay for a membership, I wasn't one of the millions of people who made it the most illegally downloaded show of all time. 
But that statistic in itself speaks to the role of car television and how many petrol heads out there are clamoring to, for a chance to see three old men finding new ways to make fun of one another in cars that keep breaking down. Unlike many people, I also watched the entire season of Top Gear, uh, suffering through a shouty host in Chris Evans, who I still believe is a true car guy through and through, but was undoubtedly the wrong person for that job. But we, what we knew after a few weeks, Top Gear knew too, and Evans' role was diminished throughout the series, which ended in his departure by mutual consent, um, also after it came to light that he was being charged with uh, some sexual harassment. Now that we're through the freshman years of the two shows that, for all intents and purposes, are brand new, we can rightfully say that there were some serious duds for both shows, but that there's so much promise in what's to come, we could be heading for a really special time in automotive television. Truly, nobody says it better than David Bowie. When Top Gear started back up, we sort of knew what we were in store for. A lot of the same segments that had worked for more than a decade, but without the same people running them and with different personalities at work. What we ended up with was a really mixed bag. Some of the segments were fun and featured a different take on the types of gags that worked with Jeremy, Richard, and James. But the two hosts, Chris and Matt, never really seemed to click, and they're... Uh, for me at least, was always a sort of tension that I sensed between the two of them, which really undercut the comedy. I've never been a huge fan of the celebrity guest segment either, but at least Jeremy treated guests like people. In the interviewer role, Evans looked more like he was filling in a form, asking the same questions to every guest every week, and nobody really looked like they were having fun, especially when Jesse Eisenberg was around. The rally cross track was an interesting twist, but conditions created such a disparity in performance that lap times were never bound to be comparable, and the segment took up so much time that could have been devoted to other stories or features. The production quality, though, was as high as ever, offering a truly cinematic quality that is hard to equal. The access to nearly intangible cars continued, and some features like the ultimate SUV test and the classic modern or classic cars with modern tech were a lot of fun. If you treat the first series without the Holy Trinity as an extended audition for permanent roles, it instantly becomes more palatable. And as we've seen in the trailer for the next series that LeBlanc, who was one of the best parts of last series, will be joined by Chris Harris and Rory Reed in a return to a traditional three-host assembly, which I think will return the show to a lot of its former glory and provide, a more fun, provide more fun for both the participants and viewers. I think we're finally going to get a new Top Gear that establishes itself as a powerful force in automotive television in its own right. The Grand Tour, too, stumbled several times throughout its first season. It's no secret that these three are Monty Python fans, but Celebrity Brain Crash will never be the next Spanish Inquisition. Partially because everyone expects it, but mostly because it was tired and unfunny after the second episode. Conversation Street was a clunky way to include some different twists on an old visual technique, but it provided more of an intrusion than the humor. I don't know why they couldn't just continue talking. 
part of the reason millions of viewers are attached to Jeremy, Richard, and James is because of their seemingly unscripted interactions. And so much of this season seemed far too heavily scripted, and the line reading was just distracting and sometimes predictable. Visually, I mean, only W. Chump and Sons rivals Top Gear for production quality, which shined even when the segments didn't, like the desert military sequence that was largely car absent. These guys don't just know how to do car films. They know how to make film films, which creates a visually compelling experience, even when some of the other aspects in the show fail. I've always loved the cheap car challenges. With these three, they never fail to amuse, and even in this new venue. The individual car tests were also excellent, with the writing of the three hosts really allowed to shine, without the pressure of needing unscripted, organic interactions with one another. Where the challenges provide a venue for comedy, the reviews offer a chance to tell a story, and each of the hosts always do well here, and it continued with the grand tour. The tent, I thought, provided a neat stage for the host, and the fact that they were in different cities almost each week provided a nice icebreaker, but only some of the times the jokes landed. I also think the show missed an opportunity to use the touring tent idea as part of a longer, ongoing challenge, sort of like a ten-part film that continued between the cities that hosted the show. It could have been a logistical nightmare, but Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman did something similar in Long Way Round and Long Way Down, but without the tent. It would have given the show a distinctly different feel from Top Gear, but what we ended up was a similar show handcuffed by legal restrictions on what they can and can't do. I mean, it's still a great show, but I'm hoping to see some more innovation from the team to really break away from the familiar formula, but not in a way that ends up like Episode 2 did. And that's it for this week's deep dive. Um, Since Kimi Raikkonen actually made real news this week, and since we're already running a bit long, we'll uh, skip sending it over to PTC News and head straight into this week's call to action. Hello, this is Big Ass Action. Uh, After picking up my wife's car yesterday from the parking lot where it sits during the day to try to get people to purchase it, I found myself being tailgated by someone in a Hummer H2 who clearly had no patience for being behind a 14-year-old Honda. I dealt with it the way I deal with most frustrating things, uh, by making fun of it, uh, and specifically the driver. Make way for the compensation machine. My truck is girthy and large, so of course that signifies that other things are too to potential mates. Uh, this, this went on for some time. Uh, the thing is... People probably said the same thing about me when I flew by them in my Infinity. Oh, he drives a sports car to make up for his small uh, self-esteem. In reality, I drove a sports car because it put a smile on my face, and it was a fun way to get from A to B. Maybe the same is true for Mr. Hummer yesterday. And I should have given him the benefit of the doubt, even when he didn't give me the benefit of adequate stopping distance. So just remember, people are allowed to like what they like without fitting into a box that we might automatically want to force them into. So go ahead and give people the benefit of the doubt and back off their bumper while you're at it. And with that, thank you for listening and thanks to Nicholas Falcon for our intro song. We're going to finish up this week with the sweet sounds of a V8. And if you think you're listening to NASCAR, then you'd be wrong. This is actually the 4.4 liter BMW Z4 GT3 racer hurtling around Monza.
Here is your moment of zen.